Saca a pinça. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. My name is Abhishek and uh, joining me from London is Philip Coggan, the Capital Markets Editor of The Economist and the man responsible for all those articles that we read under Buttonwood. Today he is here with us to talk about his special report on pensions that was published very recently. Uh, hi Philip, thank you so much for doing this. Hello Abhishek. And uh, since since we all know, Philip, that The Economist uh, does not have bylines and uh, that is it doesn't carry the name of the author at the end of the article, how does it feel to be known as the Buttonwood columnist? <laughs> well, it's very nice to um, have a, a column and it's also nice sometimes not to be identified as the author. I used to work at the Financial Times and with your byline in every day, you could get lots of emails, not all of them pleasant. So ah. a certain degree of anonymity is quite welcome sometimes. Right. But do your colleagues and friends at The Economist indulge you in some friendly banter from time to time? Because they don't share that privilege of uh, readers knowing who writes what, uh, which you do. Well, yes. I mean, we've got a number of columns. So we have a combination of columns and then non-byline stories and then these special reports like my one on pensions where you do get a byline if you write 13,000 words then they are willing to give you a your own name <laughs> right. but, uh, otherwise there's no no chance right and talking about the 13,000 words and uh, your special report on pension now it's about retirement which is mainly about you know retirement is about taking a break a break from your deadline stress probably you, you you can even play golf if you can afford that but your report uh, talks about the stress all over again that is brought about by the seven letter word called pension and uh, this time you go on to say that it's not only felt by the retirees but also the governments of different countries uh, which fund that pension both developed and developing how bad is it or or are we generally overreacting when it comes to this word called pension I don't think we are overreacting. I think um, the best way to look at it is to see it in the historic context, which is that pensions is a relative new new idea. People didn't retire. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them, of course, didn't reach the retirement age until the last couple of centuries, and then they often worked until they dropped, particularly if they were agricultural laborers. I'm sure there are many people in India who don't have the luxury of retiring, uh, and that's mm. true of China as well. So it's only with, at the state level, since Bismarck introduced a pension in 1889, that we really have got the idea in Europe and America of universal pensions for all. And right. when Bismarck introduced the pension, um, still a very few people lived significantly past the retirement age. But over the last 40 years, we've seen a, a really huge change in demography whereby people are not only living past retirement age, but much longer past it. So in the OECD, the life expectancy of someone age 65 has risen by four or five years. But over that time, the retirement age of the average person has actually fallen. Right. And your report carries an interesting stat. Uh, among other things, it says that, and I quote, while the absolute number of people of the working age is said to fall, the number of those aged over 65 will rise from 87 million to 142 million over a particular yes. time frame. So, in other words, we are saying that uh, the average person is getting healthier. With technology assists like calculators and computers, he doesn't have to work very hard, like you said. Why can't the governments at the moment understand this fact that he's not in the Stone Age or back in the Industrial Revolution where even during the Henry Ford period where people had to work on the assembly line, it's far more easier now. So when a country increases its retirement age, does it have to face too much pressure from the unions or is it too yes, hard it to pull off? 
It is quite difficult to pull off. For example, in France last year, a move to increase the retirement age to the grand level of 62 was mm -hmm. met by widespread protests, um, very nearly didn't go through. And in Britain, we are pushing up the retirement age to 66 in the long-term plan for 68, and there's a plan to make public sector workers retire at the same age as everybody else. But that's facing widespread opposition. So it's, it's not popular. People look forward to their retirement and don't want to work longer. And there is a, a factor that you've alluded to, which is very important, mm -hmm. which is that we have had fewer children in the baby boomer generation. That's the generation born between 1946 and 1964. So fewer workers will be in existence to support the greater number of pensioners. And in Europe, that ratio of people of working age to right. people of pensionable age has fallen from you know, over four to what will be under two by 2050. So that's a, a much bigger burden for the working population to shoulder. Right. And in fact, I was reading some days back about General Motors, which is generally in the news, not for its car manufacturing, but because of its pension problems. Yeah. They apparently are underfunded by more than 27 billion US dollars. And half of that is owed to the US workers and retirees. And this is as of 2010. So it indeed is, is a bit of a challenge for governments there to you know, unbundle the promises that the politicians made some time back, either politicians or the companies or the governments. Where do you see the genesis of this problem? Uh, did somebody overpromise, and uh, you know now we are facing that problem? Well, definitely, General Motors is an excellent case in point. It had a very strong union and quite mm -hmm. weak management, and it was very easy for executives in the 1970s and 1980s to promise higher pensions instead of higher immediate pay because the bill was far into the future. And indeed, it wasn't just pensions with General Motors; they promised health care for people once they've retired, which is enormously expensive in, in America. Right. But the same was true of politicians. You can promise yeah. higher pensions or an earlier retirement mm -hmm. age, and you are not the one who's going to be in office when the cost falls right. huge. Right. And, and that's why we've, we've got to this particular problem. We also face a problem that many people wrongly believe in what's called the lump of labor fallacy, which is that there's only so much work to go around. So if old people have jobs, that's stopping younger people from having jobs. But this is just nonsense. I mean, you only have to look at Japan, which traditionally has had a, a very low unemployment rate where the effective retirement age is nearer to 70. When an old person is in a job, then they are obviously producing stuff, which boosts the economic activity. They are spending money, which is, goes on other goods and services, which therefore helps to employ other people. And of course, they are not getting benefits from the state, so they're less of a burden for the taxpayer. So the idea that paying people to be idle is the way to economic success is clearly nonsense. If that were true, then if we move the retirement age down to 25, we'd all be billionaires. <laughs> right. And you spoke about uh, Japan a while ago. And have you heard of this concept called or this syndrome called the retired husband syndrome, uh, Philip? No, I haven't. The retired husband syndrome. Go on, talk me through it. Incidentally, what happens is the Japanese men, they are known to work hard at their jobs, right? So they leave very early and they come home only to sleep over. So they don't talk to their wives as much as a normal couple in England or India would. So when they retire after they are, let's say, 60 or 70, they suddenly have too much time with their wives and the wives start having the so-called retired husband syndrome and they actually have to go to the psychiatrist, etc. because uh, they can't stand their husband being around all the time because they are not used to it. Right. Well, no, I, there is some evidence that working longer does keep you more mentally active and thus improves your life expectancy, right. but it's, it's, not, it's not conclusive yet. 
but it's been a particular problem in the public sector in America where policemen, firemen have been able to right. retire at 50 or 55 on quite generous pensions. And of course, then you've got the odd position where somebody may have worked for 25 years mm-hmm. and then be retired for 30. Well, it just doesn't make sense. Right. So all of the burden, like your report also mentions, falls back on the working class. Which the government can only fund those pensions. One way is to tax the working class. So how much is reasonable, if that question can be asked to you? And how much would be reasonable? Well, that's the great difficulty. Not much is the answer, because if you tax people more highly, then the chances are the economy will struggle as well. It will make it even harder to afford to pay the pensions. Mm-hmm. Basically, however you fund a pension, whether you fund it via taxes or whether you create a fund which buys equities, government bonds or property, you are still dependent on the working population to fund that pension because the equities that you own, they only have value to the extent that workers are generating profits for the companies and paying rent on the properties that you own. So it's all a matter of balancing out the interest of the working population and the elderly. And the great difficulty in in all this is that people have exaggerated opinions about how much pension funds are likely to earn. In America, for example, individual states have a a targeted return of 8% on their pension funds, which with government bonds earning 3% or so, they're just not going to, to get. And they also underestimate the amount they need to save to generate a decent pension. So if you work on a sort of theory of 5% as being a reasonable yield on your pension fund. Thus, if you want an income of $20,000 in retirement, you need to get $400,000 in your pension fund to generate that income. Well, that's a much bigger sum than most people have put aside. Among all the countries that you've researched, which of these countries uh, made you, you know, look up or stand up and say, hang on, these guys are doing a good job and perhaps we can borrow a couple of pages from their book. Is there any country that stands out? I'd say the Netherlands is one that stands out. They have had a very well-developed pension system for 30, 40 years. Most people are members of it. They've ensured that the pension schemes are fully funded. They also have a very important provision whereby the poorest members of the population are guaranteed a decent pension. And those are the things which we need to be concerned about. We need to reduce the overall cost of pensions whilst keeping the poorest protected because old age poverty is is a real problem. But also if you're going to pay a more generous pension to the poor, then you need more workers to generate the income needed to pay that pension. But the, the Netherlands has a very good system. Denmark has a good system which reduces the cost of running pension funds. It's another factor we haven't mentioned that a lot of people put money aside in pension funds and there's an annual charge creamed off by insurance companies and fund managers that massively reduces the overall value of their pension. There are some other countries which have used measures which come under the the nudge heading, which is to try and force people to save more in pensions. So, for example, you have to opt out of a company pension scheme rather than having to opt in. And this takes advantage of, of inertia. Right. I guess India also woke up uh, slightly late in the day. Uh, Philip, before 2004, anyone who was employed, for instance, my dad, now when he retired from a public sector undertaking, none of his monthly income was set aside for contribution towards his future pension. But in 2004, uh, a new pension scheme or the NPS was launched in India, wherein if you are employed after 2004, then For the next three or four years, you have to compulsorily set aside, let's say, X percent of your 
salary for the pension fund of that company or that government uh, undertaking and the company would also invest 10% of your amount and then you can opt out of it if you don't like that after let's say 3 or 4 years but not many like you say do it i guess india is also has indulged in the nudge phenomena if there is if there is something like that wherein since somebody else is taking care of their savings they would not want to opt out of it so the savings become compulsory over time well that sounds like moving in the right direction i mean the, the two important things are to ensure there's many people save as possible and they also save a decent percentage of their income so if you want to end up with a retirement income that's around two thirds of your final salary mm-hmm. you need to be saving you and the employer together at least 20% of your income so that's quite a lot to put aside right. but India has one great advantage over many other countries particularly China which is that the demography is still quite favorable so there are plenty of younger people coming through who will be able to support the elderly right do you see that uh, it, it's quite difficult for a country like India or a China to set certain rules aside because of the disparity of income as well as the population as compared to countries like Netherlands or the UK well indeed well uh, the poorer the country the more you need a state a pension system to come through and support the elderly and there is a very difficult issue in that how do you make sure that the poor are protected without creating disincentives to save for those people who are a bit above the poverty level and it's very difficult to get around that problem some governments for example in britain have reacted by having means tested benefits that is when you get above a certain level of income you start to take the pension away mm-hmm. but the the trouble with that is that um you get effectively very high rates of tax if you have saved a little bit and you're you know not on the poorest level of income then you may find you lose as much as benefit in benefits as you've gained from saving so that creates very bad incentives and if you are too generous in the state pension then you end up um giving money to i don't know Sachin Tendulkar as a generous <laughs> state pension rather than somebody working on the fields and so it's quite difficult to to control those two elements i uh, you you sound philip a little bit like uh, harry truman's economist where he says on one hand and then on the other hand we also have this but i guess that's quite the problem that everyone is everyone faces when it comes to national policies of this this stage yes you're trying to balance out right. several different factors so cost universal coverage mm-hmm. incentives all those things come into the mix and uh, there's no perfect system or at least no system that applies perfectly to all the countries in the world right final couple of questions i know we have run out of time especially in the developed countries do you suspect that since most of the developed countries like america are spent thrift since you get used to a particular kind of lifestyle after retirement you do need that amount of money and that uh, no money is enough money then would that be a too big an accusation because a challenge of retirement is about not only to spend time but how do you spend the time without spending too much money yes it is a difficulty and and one of the difficulties is that the pattern of spending an old age goes to a kind of u shape so you start off wanting to go on world cruises and right. join the golf club and all that kind of thing then when you get into your mid 70s you tend to be less mobile and then you stay at home more and mm-hmm. watch tv and then when you get into your 80s you get less well and then your healthcare costs shoot up so it's quite right. difficult to manage that problem but of course you have to remember that the the vast majority of people in the developed world although they're obviously better off than the average person in india are not of the kind of world cruise yacht set they are getting by as best they can going to the right. low cost supermarkets and things like that and 
um, struggling to have enough money to pay the fuel bill every winter. So I wouldn't want you to get come away with the picture that the average developed world retiree is sort of living the life of um, Riley. Ah. How long did it take you to research this story? Because it's it's pretty comprehensive, like all special reports. But more importantly, sometime back, like you uh, gave us a string of countries. It's got Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, Japan, Hungary, UK, USA, and quite a few. You've you've had to go through, I guess, quite a lot of paper and and reading quite a lot. So how long did it take you to research this story? It took a couple of months. Uh, there are some very dense books I had to read. I went on a trip to the Netherlands, a trip around America to where there's a particular problem and a very big political problem at the moment. So, and I talked to an endless number of people, but that's how it should be, that you should make these reports as well researched as possible. That's what we pride ourselves on at The Economist. Absolutely. And thanks a lot, uh, Philip, for your time. Uh, it's a pleasure. Good luck. And, and you also mentioned Sachin Tendulkar. So just to slip this in, that I was there on 2nd April when India won the World Cup at Wankhede Stadium. I hope you got to see that match on your television set if you... I did, and I'll just try and top you by saying I was at Lords in 1983 ah. when India previously won the World Cup against West Indies, and I was cheering for India that day too. And that's great. So well done. <laughs> yes, but you guys beat Australia in the Ashes, so there's something for you guys to cheer about. Oh yes, yeah, yes, yes. Oh, well, it's the one we really care about. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Philip. Thank you. Bye bye.